Good morning, everyone. If I can have your attention, we're going to get started. My, uh, my watch says nine, a little bit after 9 o'clock. Um, welcome to Cato. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. It's my uh, distinct pleasure to open today's proceedings. Uh, I, I first want to thank my colleagues, congratulate really my colleagues, Malou Innocent and Charles Zacabe, for their work in pulling this event together. I want to thank uh, Brandon Arnold and Kurt Couchman in our Government Relations Department who have done a lot of work. Um, our Marketing Department uh, did a terrific job uh, telling you all about this event, which is why we have such a terrific turnout uh, today. And also, of course, thanks to our Conference Department. They make everything run smoothly here at Cato, uh, and here today's no exception. Um, I've, I've alluded to the fact that we do have a good turnout today. We're expected to be at or beyond capacity. Um, if you would be so kind, if there is an empty seat next to you, there shouldn't be. Uh, get uh, comfortable with your neighbors for a few hours there. Um, if you do have uh, cell phones and noise-making devices, please turn them off. Uh, that doesn't apply to those of you watching on uh, at uh, www.cato.org, but uh, uh, you all will wish you were here uh, uh, with all of us. Um, I just want to make a few brief remarks this morning um, uh, with, a, with like what I say is a trip down memory lane. Um, in the 1990s, not so long ago, uh, conservatives castigated the Clinton administration for conducting foreign policy like social work. Uh, they scorned vague and ill-defined missions in places like Somalia and Haiti and Bosnia and Kosovo. And leading thinkers on the right, in particular, uh, asked pointed questions about how these missions advanced U.S. security and national interest. And they warned that such missions threatened to uh, become a dangerous distraction for uh, the U.S. military and, and, in fact, even a misuse of American power. Um, in that context, I think many people on the right were encouraged uh, in 1999 and 2000 when George W. Bush and his senior advisors, uh, uh, including, for example, Condoleezza Rice, who in early 2000 declared, we don't need to have the 82nd Airborne escorting kids to, kids to kindergarten. Uh, Bush was equally blunt he, in his debate, of course, with Al Gore. One of the many things that he said is, I don't think our troops ought to be used for what's called nation building. Well, uh, how times have changed. Today, we call it COIN, uh, the military shorthand for counterinsurgency, but the counterinsurgency field manual instructs our soldiers and Marines that they, quote, are expected to be nation builders as well as warriors, rebuilding infrastructure and basic services. What was articulated in strategy and doctrine is being operationalized in Marja and countless other villages and valleys uh, today in a country the size of Texas. General Stanley McChrystal, of course, our commander there in Afghanistan, told reporters, quote, we've got a government in a box ready to roll in. As government arrives on the coattails of U.S. troops, it will ensure law and order, set up schools and clinics, repair roads, revitalize the irrigation system, and conjole farmers into cultivating something other than the opium poppies. The successful transformation of Marja, explained Andrew Basevich in the Los Angeles Times last month, with more than a hint of skepticism, will demonstrate the viability of McChrystal's plan to transform Afghanistan as a whole. At least that's the idea. An idea, indeed. Hunting al-Qaeda can be done with relatively few people on the ground through cooperation with our partners in the region and, frankly, around the world. Uh, by contrast, however, building governmental institutions cannot be done on the cheap, which is why President Obama has more than doubled the number of troops 
on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, and the number is expected to cross uh, 100,000 this summer. Most Republicans in Congress, most conservatives, have backed the president's escalation, and a few have called for even more resources to be plowed into the country. Uh, these men and women seem, I think, genuinely unaware, frankly, of the conversation that was had in the 1990s over the purpose of our military and of the important questions raised about the limits of U.S. military power and about the wisdom of trying to advance American security by rebuilding failed states. Or, perhaps, 9-11, or more accurately, the lessons we chose to learn from 9-11, shattered the right's skepticism about large-scale social engineering projects on the other side of the planet, uh, leaving us in this country with a right-wing and a left-wing consensus in favor of big government abroad, even as the two sides continue to fight over the size of government here at home. And with libertarians alone, among the remnants of the conservative movement founded by the likes of William Buckley and Frank Meyer, uh, still willing to make the case for limited government in both places. Um, today's discussion, I think, provides an opportunity for conservatives to revisit some of these debates and to explore them in the context of our deepening commitment in Afghanistan, and to do so from a common intellectual heritage, one founded on deep skepticism about government's capacity to do good things, even when done with the best of intentions. At least that's what my tie says. Limited government, individual liberty, which is available for sale from the Cato store, by the way. Um, with that, let me turn the proceedings over to my, my friend Grover Norquist, President of Americans for Tax Reform. I just want to make a quick, short, uh, personal Note, his full bio is included in the packet we handed out, as are the bios of all the speakers today, uh, and I encourage you to look at them. Grover and I first met in the summer of 1987. I was an intern at the Cato Institute, not in this fine building at the time. Uh, Grover, and I was also active at the time in the College of Republicans at George Washington University, and Grover had earlier, of course, served as executive director uh, of the College of Republicans National Organization. We met as volunteers in the Pete DuPont campaign, uh, a campaign that, unfortunately, too briefly, uh, united conservatives and libertarians around a set of ideas consistent with limited government and individual liberty. Uh, one hopes that it wasn't the last political campaign to do so. And with that, Grover Norquist. Thank you. Uh, we're going to start with five-minute presentations from the congressmen. They can respond uh, to what each of the others have said, and then we'll go straight to uh, audience uh, questions, thoughts, short harangues. Uh, and we'll start with uh, Congressman Duncan from Tennessee. Well, I won't take five minutes, uh, Grover. Thank you. Uh, I said in a speech on the House floor in April of 2008 uh, that Jonah Goldberg had written in a, what was then a very recent article in National Review magazine that, uh, quote, the insight that involvement abroad feel, fuels the expansion of the state was central to the formation of the modern conservative and libertarian movements. Let me read that again. The insight that involvement abroad fuels the expansion of the state was central to the formation of the modern conservative and libertarian movements. In other words, uh, perpetual war uh, leads to bigger government and goes uh, very much against uh, traditional conservatism. Uh, I'll go back to, uh, well, Christopher mentioned that uh, uh, most uh, conservatives, I think about uh, 80 or higher percentage of the conservatives in the House, uh, the Republicans in the House, uh, very much opposed uh, the foreign policy of uh, President Clinton and the former Yugoslavia. And I'm convinced that uh, 
probably 80 percent of the Republicans in the House would have opposed uh, uh, the war in Iraq if it had been done by President Gore. But uh, uh, the shifting of the White House uh, seemed to shift the views of the uh, parties. And when uh, when the uh, White House found that I was leaning against the uh, uh, first uh, or against the um, war in Iraq, uh, um, um, I was called down to a small room at at the White House with Condoleezza Rice and George Tennant and John McLaughlin. And I I asked him at that time, I said, uh, it it had just been on the front page of the Washington Post that day, or maybe the day before, that uh, Lawrence Lindsay had said a war with Iraq uh, would cost $100 to $200 billion. And Condoleezza, I asked about that, and Condoleezza Rice said, oh, no, it wouldn't cost more than about 50 or $60 billion, and they'd get much of that from the Allies. Um, and then I asked, I said, well, if you can get past the traditional conservative position of being against massive foreign aid, and if you can get past the traditional conservative position of being against a huge deficit spending, and if you can get past the traditional conservative position of conservatives being the biggest critics of the U.N. and the biggest critics of world government, and we're going to war primarily to enforce U.N. resolutions, and if you get past the traditional conservative position of being against the, uh, uh, the U.S. being the policeman of the world, do you have any evidence of any imminent threat? And they didn't. Uh, they, had, they had six of us in that room. Uh, only two who were there voted uh, against the war. There were six of us that vo- did vote against the war, six Republicans. But uh, I have said since then that... Uh, I think fiscal conservatives should be the most horrified by the way the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have uh, have been conducted. And uh, I was I was very pleased that um, uh, George Will, in a column of, uh, in a recent column, he changed his position on Afghanistan, and he said the budget will not support an expansion there. The military will be hard-pressed to execute it, and America's patience will not be commensurate with Afghanistan's limitless demands. And he said this will not end well. And he went on to criticize uh, uh, neoconservatives whose uh, uh, influence far exceeds their numbers. But uh, he wrote that neoconservatives are, quote, magnificently misnamed and that they are, quote, really the most radical people in this town. And, and I agree with that. I, uh, uh, I, I think we should uh, uh, remember that even General Petraeus said that uh, we should never forget, he said last summer, we should never forget that Afghanistan has been known through the centuries as the graveyard of empires. Um, I, I saw in, in the current issue of Time magazine... Um, uh, I read a, a letter to a brief letter to the editor um, from uh, a man in Massachusetts, and um, he said this. He said the real question should be why are we fighting the Taliban? If we are victorious, then what? We cannot afford to continue propping up puppet regimes around the world. Haven't we learned a lesson from Iraq? And that. That letter reminded me of an article that was in uh, uh, Fortune magazine in, in its November 25, 2002 issue, in which Fortune, Fortune asked, um, they said uh, about Iraq, we win, what then? 
And that article went on to say a military victory could turn into a strategic defeat, a prolonged, expensive American-led occupation could turn U.S. troops into sitting ducks for Islamic terrorists. Um, but I, I, go, I, I, I'm, I know I'm going back and forth between Afghanistan and Iraq, but much of what I believe about Afghanistan comes from what uh, I saw, what I believed would happen in Iraq, and what did happen in Iraq. Georgianne Geyer, a conservative foreign policy columnist, wrote again about the war in Iraq. Uh, she said, critics of the war against Iraq have said since the beginning of the conflict that Americans, still strangely complacent about overseas wars, being waged by minorities in their name, will inevitably come to a point where they will see that they have to have a government that provides services at home or one that seeks empire across the globe. And I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, close with a couple of other, one other quote and a couple of thoughts. William F. Buckley, who most of us consider to be the godfather of conservatism, he came out very, very strongly against the war in Iraq. And he wrote in 2005, when the war in Iraq had been going on for a much shorter time than the war in Afghanistan, which, as all of you know, has gone on for over eight years now. And even if the Kucinich resolution had passed, would have gone on till the end of this year, so it would have been a total of nine years. But William F. Buckley wrote in 2005, he said, A respect for the power of the United States is engendered by our success in engagements in which we take part. A point is reached when tenacity conveys not steadfastness of purpose, but misapplication of pride. And he went on to say that if the war drug on for even another year, and of course it went on far longer than that, he said where there had been skepticism about our venture, there will, there will then be contempt. And I think it's really sad. I, I rode a train for 77 hours to go out to the Republican National Convention in 1964 to be an honorary assistant sergeant at arms. And I've said you can't get any lower than being an honorary assistant, <laughs> but it got me into the convention. I have been a hardcore conservative since I was a teenager. And I think it's really sad that now we somehow have gotten the uh, uh, idea across to the general public that perpetual war and massive foreign aid and huge deficit spending and, and uh, unquestioned military spending is conservative. And I think it goes against every traditional conservative position I have ever known. I believe that national defense is the most important and most legitimate function of the national government. But I also uh, believe that it is not conservative and not patriotic to just never question the military and blindly go along with anything that that giant bureaucracy wants. And so I have opposed these wars and feel very comfortable doing so and do so from a very conservative, in my opinion anyway, point of view. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Congressman Tom McClintock, California. Thank you. A couple of uh, principles I think were forgotten during the Bush administration. I, I do want to make the distinction between Afghanistan and Iraq. I think they were two entirely different circumstances, but a a mistake 
common to both of our engagements was we forgot about the Constitution and the fact that it requires a formal congressional declaration of war uh, in order to commit uh, troops to battle. Uh, and there are some very important reasons for that. The American founders looked at how Europe had been plunged into one war after another because of fits of pique by ruling monarchs. Uh, they wanted to uh, assure that on the rare cases when this nation went to war, it did so with the full backing of the, uh, the Congress representing all of the people. Uh, and I think that the other reason is war is not something to be taken lightly. Uh, if, if you are going to engage in it, you have to put all of the might and fury of the country behind it. And a declaration of war establishes a very clear, bright line uh, that once crossed, uh, uh, there's only, well, as MacArthur said, no substitute for victory. We completely forgot those, uh, the, the, that constitutional requirement, that very important principle. We've been forgetting it uh, uh, since the end of World War II, uh, and it hasn't worked out well for us. Um, I don't know if there is such a thing as a sort of war. If there is such a thing, we're not very good at it, and we shouldn't be engaging in it. We're very good at real wars, uh, but have only fought those uh, when we have been attacked, and that's the second principle that was forgotten in Iraq. Uh, up until the Bush administration, I don't believe there are any instances where this nation has, has preemptively attacked another. Uh, when we have discerned uh, threats to our nation, we have surrounded those threats with superior force and waited them out. And uh, nine times out of ten, they've gone away on their own. The one time out of ten they don't, we're prepared for them. I look at the attack of 9-11 as our generation's Pearl Harbor. Uh, Al-Qaeda received uh, succor, encouragement, um, uh, and protection from the uh, Taliban government of Afghanistan. In that sense... Uh, I believe that al-Qaeda was, no, was an agency of that government and, and no different uh, than the Japanese naval air forces uh, that attacked uh, Pearl Harbor uh, as they acted as an agency of the Japanese government. Uh, that was an act of war and it required a, a declaration of war. When Franklin Roosevelt appeared before the Congress in 1941, uh, uh, he committed. He asked for that congressional declaration of war and then committed the full resources of the country behind that war. He stripped the government of all of its other activities, put all of the resources into the war effort, and in three and a half years we had utterly annihilated and vanquished the two most powerful military forces on the planet and had installed governments of our liking under the authority of a military occupation. Um, how different was our response uh, after our generation's Pearl Harbor on September 11th? The President of the United States appeared before Congress. Uh, can you imagine Franklin Roosevelt saying, we're going to track down every one of those pilots uh, who attacked our ships and bring them to justice? <laughs> well, that's what, that's what uh, George Bush did. Uh, uh, we're going to track down those terrorists. We're going to bring them to justice. While we're doing this, you all go shopping. And then uh, uh, two years later, uh, uh, he attacked uh, Iraq. Can you imagine two years after Pearl Harbor, Franklin Roosevelt on a flimsy resolution of force attacking Brazil? Uh, so I, I, I think that our, our entire focus has been badly mismanaged from the outset. I have great sympathy for this administration. They have inherited a mess. My concern is that they are repeating and amplifying several of the major mistakes of the Bush administration. The first one is the inadequate application of force. Again, if you're going to put your kids in harm's way, you have got to back them with all of the resources of the country. Uh, adding an additional 30,000 troops I don't think is going to make much of a difference one way or another, uh, uh, except it's going to assure additional American casualties. 
uh, before the already announced pullout uh, in uh, the summer of next year. Uh, I think it was Jay Leno who said, uh, well, the president placed us on an 18-month timetable. That puts the Taliban on a 19-month timetable. Uh, and I think that there's uh, unfortunately uh, 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 reality in that. Uh, the other thing I think that uh, they've done to magnify the problem is to continue the Bush administration's definition of victory as winning the hearts and minds of the Afghan people. That term has a familiarity to those of us who remember Vietnam. Uh, I don't believe that you can win hearts and minds uh, uh, of the people of a nation when you're waging war against that nation. Uh, once you're waging war, you're way beyond winning hearts and minds. Your sole objective should be to destroy the will and the ability of that nation uh, to resist. Uh, once you have done that, then you can begin winning hearts and minds. Uh, the uh, Japanese civilians and the German civilians uh, uh, hated uh, uh, the Americans when we began our occupation. They were supposed to. Um, but they were so tired of uh, and, 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 and so unable to, do, to, to, to mount any further resistance uh, that we were able to establish under military authority a government of our liking, and we remained there until we were quite sure uh, that it was going to be a stable government. We've broken all of those, uh, those principles in uh, our engagement in, um, in Afghanistan, uh, and, I don't, and I agree it's not going to end well. The problem at this point is what do we do? Uh, a, uh, a, 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 the, the immediate withdrawal that was put to the Congress a few weeks ago, I think, would, uh, would guarantee some very bad things, uh, including the um, immediate um, uh, establishment of a vacuum, the return of the Taliban, the annihilation of all of those Afghan citizens who had uh, uh, placed their trust uh, in American uh, resolve and authority, and worst of all, I think that it would uh, begin some very dangerous calculations uh, in hostile capitals around the world. Um, I also uh, believe that uh, policy is changeable and is adaptable, and uh, I do hold out hope that the administration may, in a sudden uh, moment of rationality, uh, commit the forces necessary to get this over with. Uh, if not, then I think that we, we are going to have to uh, uh, consider alternatives. Dana Rohrbacher, also California. Well, there's some uh, fundamental truths that <clears throat> my two colleagues uh, have gleaned uh, through philosophy and uh, through their readings. Uh, I share uh, some of their conclusions, and uh, uh, but much of what I believe in terms of what our foreign policy should be has been um, calculated based on my life experience and uh, I've been very involved since I was a young person with uh, trying to uh, defeat certain forces uh, by engaging with the enemy of freedom uh, in various parts of the world which uh, I was lucky enough as a young man to uh, experience. Uh, uh, spent some time in Vietnam and some time in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and, uh, which gave me a very unique perspective on uh, uh, how to approach uh, these type of challenges that we are facing today. Uh, let me just note that uh, while I understand our founding fathers, <clears throat> with their wisdom, 
uh, made sure that the United States did not get involved in a major way uh, overseas during the first hundred years of our country's history, uh, there are forces at play in the world, uh, and Ronald Reagan used to say we have a very special role in the world, and that we did come here from, you know, all of us of every race and religion that have come here uh, to live in freedom, and uh, we have a very special role to play, to show the world is a better way and how we handle ourselves here at home, but also, I think, to play a positive force in the world when there are certainly negative things going on that would affect all people who would want to be free. Um, I think it would be a far different world, uh, for example, had we had a philosophy of non-involvement, uh, had the Japanese not attacked Pearl Harbor, and had they instead uh, uh, just gone on their, their, their rampage of murder and slaughter that was going on in China at the time, had we turned our back on that and turned our back on the the evil nature of Nazism, uh, what kind of world would we live in had the United States not stepped up and gotten involved in those efforts to defeat the, uh, the horrible forces that were at play during that time? This would be a whole different world dominated by the Japanese militarists and the Nazis. And by the way, the, the Soviet Union would probably still be in existence as well. But let's take a look then after that challenge came communism, and commun the communist ideology simply despised everything that we believe in. And we were at war during the Cold War. <clears throat> Had we not engaged in, in things, now I'm saying we were competent, or the best way to engage, and this is what I will lead into what's going on now, uh, was not necessarily to send troops all over the world and occupy various countries. And uh, uh, perhaps that was what we understood at the time, because with the Japanese militarists and the Nazis, that was the type of war that we were in uh, at that time. And that's what uh, uh, Tom's view of how, to, the, how we fight things was developed in World War II. Well, <clears throat> during that time with communism, we were up against an ideology. And there are ways to fight and uh, what worked and what didn't work. Uh, we did not obliterate the communists. We did not defeat communism. Uh, by sending our armies in various places. And uh, I was very privileged to work for Congress, uh, for <laughs> I was very privileged to work for uh, Ronald Reagan. You'll have to excuse me, last night was St. Patrick's Day, and uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I learned uh, from Ronald Reagan was how to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, one thing that happened during the Reagan years, of course, was that Ronald Reagan was, I mean, as we know, he was condemned as being this militarist and everything like that, which was as far from what Ronald Reagan really was as you can, uh, as could possibly be. Reagan actually sent military forces uh, to different parts of the world uh, on, a much, <laughs> on a very few occasions. And one was to Beirut, and I was there when that happened, and I was uh, felt a little bit personally involved in that. I had uh, uh, I'd remembered when the troops went into Beirut, and I uh, went around uh, talking to people in the White House, uh, what the hell are we doing, you know, sending this number of Marines in? Because uh, we have, of course, uh, these guys are outnumbered, and uh, their firepower is, uh, is not... Uh, 
really something they can overwhelm an enemy because there are so many forces at play there. And, of course, there was some political explanation of what we were going to achieve. And, uh, and I just told him, I said, you know, the chances of this succeeding are very small, and the chances of this turning into a fiasco are very high. Uh, so this is a risky thing. And, uh, and then, of course, what happens uh, when you send U.S. troops in to do the battle, to do the war, to do the bidding, is that politics gets involved, and the State Department uh, convinced our military that our, that our Marines shouldn't have bullets in their rifles. I hope you all know that. When Reagan sent those Marines in there, the order of the day was that you do not have the clips in your rifles. And they did that because of the political, uh, we live in this democracy, we have these various forces at work. The State Department dunderheads uh, decided that we could send our people into a hostile situation without their clips and their rifles. And what happened? And I went around after that when I learned that. I said, "What the hell are we doing here? And uh, why? How can we do this to our men? Just put them in harm's way?" And they said, "Look, that will be taken care of. That is so stupid that eventually, you know, we have all these Marines working for Ronald Reagan. You know, Jim Baker and and uh, Weinberger and and everybody's a former Marine. You know, Reagan and the rest of them. They're not going to let this stand. And so, don't worry about it. Go back to writing speeches." So, uh, you know, uh, that concern actually got in the bottom of the pile at the National Security Council. And uh, what happened uh, was that when the truck with those terrorists came through into the Marine barracks area, uh, the guards didn't have any clips in their rifles, and, the, and they weren't able to stop the truck, and it went right into that building and killed 300 of our Marines. And let me note that I looked, I, I, I looked very carefully at the list, immediately because uh, my brother's best friend and my very good friend uh, who were very close to our families was the first casualty, was the first name on the list of the men who died. And I felt very personally responsible for that because I hadn't been a pain in the ass to those decision makers early on about that. And had I been that royal pain, I may, might have been able to stop that, and, and my friend would have still been alive. Well, we have that type of responsibility now uh, to make sure that, and Ronald Reagan, God bless him, Ronald Reagan knew this isn't the time to think about saving face. This is time to get out of there. And we got out of there very quickly. And he knew instinctively that had we left our Marines in at that point, uh, uh, we would have been in a quagmire, and it would have grown and grown, and it would have destroyed his administration. But at the same time, Ronald Reagan was not an isolationist, was not someone who believed we should not engage, and that military force is something that is not something that, that, that should be, uh, uh, that we should, you know, step back from. But we have to use it in, in, in a way and use what force is needed to preserve freedom and to promote freedom. And uh, uh, what he decided on was a strategy known as the Reagan Doctrine. And uh, Jack Wheeler, who some of you know, and uh, Mel Grover knows Jack very well, uh, became sort of our, uh, the, uh, you might say, our own intelligence agency uh, for those of us in the Reagan White House who were inclined to defeat communism but are not necessarily endorse it, didn't endorse sending American troops everywhere uh, to do the fighting. 
And what Reagan Doctrine was was a very successful strategy that I believe is the strategy of, what hap- of how you handle these type of, of challenges. And it doesn't require us to send American troops everywhere in the world and do the fighting for other people. What it is is that basically you go to various areas, find people who are your natural allies, either people who believe in freedom or people who have a gripe with the, uh, with the, with the number one power group, if that power group threatens you, and you basically support them and let them do the fighting. And uh, I... Um, uh, and that's what worked in Afghanistan and Nicaragua and elsewhere. We drained the budget of the Soviet Union until it collapsed, until the budget collapsed, uh, by making, putting them on the defensive, but not by sending U.S. troops everywhere. And uh, that strategy worked in Afghanistan. We defeated the Soviet Army by, with their proxies by supporting, and they said, well, that actually led to, to uh, the Taliban. Well, it did not. Let me just note that the people who drove the Russians out were not the Taliban. The Taliban didn't exist at the time. Most of the people who drove the Soviets out, the Mujahideen, and I was uh, honored to go to uh, Afghanistan uh, uh, in one of the most last major battles they fought with, the, uh, with Soviet troops and uh, participate in that battle. And I got to know them very well and uh, their courage and etc. Well, th- those courageous Afghans were the ones who won the Cold War for us. It wasn't necessarily our own troops that did that. So uh, that worked. All right. And, and by the way, what didn't work is when we immediately left Afghanistan because we're not going to be non-interventionists now, and we left it to the Saudis and the Pakistanis to to, uh, to control that situation now that the Russians had left. And, of course, what did they do? They supported the most radical elements in Islam instead of those brave people who did not reflect that. We, we had lots of alternatives. The king of Afghanistan was a positive alternative there. But we walked away. And, in fact, during the Clinton years, uh, as the Saudis and the Pakistanis uh, made their, uh, uh, created their, their, their radical Islamic uh, uh, puppets there, the Taliban, uh, uh, we ended up, then uh, covertly supporting the Taliban under the Clinton administration. And, um, uh, but the problem was when we disengaged. And you, to be engaged in the world does not mean you have to send your troops there all the time, however. Okay, I'll hurry up, Grover. So the bottom line is, right now, we should be using the strategy in Afghanistan. And going into Iraq was a mistake with our large numbers of troops. We could have supported the Kurds. And, and supported the Shiites there and, and uh, let them do the fighting, and then we wouldn't have been stuck in that quagmire. So I didn't, we didn't, the decision to go in with our troops was bad. The decision to engage was not. In Afghanistan, sending more troops is not the way to do it. Uh, what I'm saying is engagement, uh, when we're up against an evil force like r- radical Islam, we are at war with radical Islam. They declared war on us. We didn't declare a war on them. Yeah, it was like Pearl Harbor, but it's an ideology. It's not a country. And uh, so, uh, anyway, to defeat radical Islam and uh, to, to make sure they didn't have a base in Afghanistan, how did we succeed after 9-11? It wasn't by sending in large numbers of troops 
and Tom, defeating the enemy with our big troop. If we did that, we would have lost in Afghanistan right off the bat. No, what we did was utilize those members of the Mujahideen who myself and other people had been working with the, the years in the 1990s to try to defeat the Taliban in a coalition. We used them to defeat the Taliban which was the right way to go. We had 200 American troops on the ground as we drove an army of 75,000 radical Islamists out of Afghanistan. 200 troops on the ground because we let them do the fighting. And that's the approach that works. We've, uh, unfortunately, we are now in a situation where people are easing into a whole other approach, which is let the Americans do the fighting. That doesn't work. And I don't believe in disengaging from Afghanistan immediately. In fact, but I do believe we can't use U.S. troops to do it. One last thought, and that is we need to make sure we go in and work with those people in Afghanistan who hate the Taliban, and there are lots of them, and let them do the fighting but support them so that they can defeat radical Islam, which is their enemy and our enemy. And that's what I have to say. Thank you. Congressman Duncan, and then we'll go to quick questions. Well, um, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, Dana and I were both first elected to Congress in November of 1988, and we have been the best of friends since then. And every year that we've been in the Congress, either he is the most conservative or I'm the most conservative <laughs> on our votes uh, since we've uh, – and we're very great friends. And I read good things about Tom McClintock before, I ever, before he ever even came to Congress, and I got to know him, and I can tell you that – I've noticed since he's been, he's been here, he is a very courageous uh, member. In fact, if there's a vote uh, that goes 400 to 25, Tom and I will generally be among the 25. So we, I vote almost identical with these two men. I do, I do think uh, that it's that not 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 that they've uh, uh, said this, but. Uh, I do think it's unfair for some people to say if you if you if you don't favor every kind of um, uh, uh, foreign war or foreign involvement that anybody can think of that uh, that you're somehow an isolationist because I've always said that uh, I, d I do favor as you can tell a, a very uh, uh, less interventionist and more neutral foreign policy around the world, but. Uh, 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 I also favor trade and tourism, cultural and educational exchanges, and the U.S. helping out during humanitarian crises to some uh, limited extent. But uh, uh, I will tell you that uh, I think with the national debt that the Congress has now voted to uh, raise to $14 trillion, that we cannot continue to spend hundreds of billions on the types of things we've been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I, and Dana and I were here for the first Gulf War, which I voted for. Uh, I went to all the briefings, and I heard about Saddam Hussein's uh, uh, elite uh, uh, troops and how great the threat was. And then I watched on the news as those same troops surrendered to CNN camera crews or empty tanks. And I thought then that the threat had been greatly exaggerated. Coming on down several years, I remember reading a column uh, by Walter Williams in which he said that the Al-Qaeda uh, was now less than 3,000 in number, and they were mostly uh, high school dropouts who lived at home with their parents. And uh, uh, a few months ago, I saw in the Washington Times where the uh, 
top uh, UN terrorism official said Al Qaeda was having trouble maintaining credibility. And so what I, uh, you know, I have come to believe over the years is, is uh, I, I, I see that all the defense contractors hire all the retired admirals and generals. And I, and I really have come to believe that most of these things are mo much more about money and power than they are about any real threat. I voted for, in 1998, I voted for the Iraqi Freedom Act to give $100 million to the Iraqi opposition to let them do the fighting and dying. And in fact, in that uh, conference that I mentioned at the White House, uh, one of the things that uh, we were told by uh, Condoleezza Rice and George Tenet uh, was that over 80% of the um, uh, uh, Iraqi people hated Saddam Hussein. And, uh, you know, my thought was, well, if that's true, and I believed it, why don't we support the opposition? I believe, exactly. as, as Dana did, that, w that we support the uh, opposition on some of these things. But to send young American uh, men and women to, f to fight and die uh, when uh, it's not absolutely, uh, I, I believe that war should be, uh, the uh, should only be conducted if it's the, if there's no other reasonable alternative and, and as a last resort. And I think in the last few years we have become too eager uh, to go to war and unnecessarily so. I see hands for how many people have questions here. Okay. Um, we're going to take these four questions and then the group will respond and then we're going to take these four questions and the group will respond. So ask them one at a time. Guys, answer them in alphabetical order. My name is uh, Albert Demir. I'm a, a student from Afghanistan here in American University. Uh, Representative Dana, you brought about a really good point that you have to work with the Mujahideen. I think you have a really good experience with them, working with them in the past. But my question is that you have lost their support as well for the past eight years. You don't have their support either. Most of them are in Congress and in, uh, in Afghan Congress, and you don't have their support. And they're not also supported by the Afghan people. They have lost the support of the Afghan people. Uh, what happened, there was a bill that was passed by the Congress, Afghan Congress, giving them an amnesty of what they have done in the past in civil war. Uh, so they have killed a lot of Afghans as well. And they don't have the support of Afghans. And you don't have their support either. How would you work with them? Okay. Next, we'll answer them together. Yeah, then you. My question is, why don't we use constitutional letters of mark and reprisal? I mean, the federal government can't, you know, deliver mail effectively. Why don't we send Dog the Bounty Hunter in to take care of these troops? Instead of sending humongous militaries across deserts to take care of things, these things, why don't we do obey the law and use sniper teams to go and take care of these problems for us instead of the U.S. government? Sir? Um, my name's Bill Gillette. I'm a uh, third-generation military officer. Um, I really think, when I finish with this, I'm making a statement and I'm leaving. I think you gentlemen, it's great. Your conservatism for national concerns, taxing, and everything else is, is well taken. I find all three of you very poor students of history. 
I mean, you're arguing against yourselves in your own talk about Japan, and then we had to uh, go against the uh, Japanese and the uh, Nazis. Well, we're fighting militant Islamists. That's the war. The war is not Iraq. I, I, the war is not Afghanistan. Way, Those are fronts I, I, and you're, campaigns. You're, 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 but I my point not, is this. You know, I didn't disagree with what okay, you said. Okay, I understand. I understand. I was not, Mr. Rohrbacher, you, you talk more than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, so let me, let me just finish this. I'm getting up and getting out of here. I spent 25 years. I was the G4 OPSO in Iraq. I had the Iraqis and the Kuwaitis come up in the torture rooms there and just say, thank you so much. You've got to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Iraq is a heterogeneous, the, the most heterogeneous. Did they teach you courtesy Iraq, in the military? I, I, am, I have you not said You don't get up and walk wrong. out. You have a discussion. We That's will have a discussion. Here. I'm going to walk out and talk to you later on. Oh, okay. The, I'm going to tell you what. Maybe you Iraq is the most heterogeneous you. country. Uh, of the Arab countries in 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 the uh, wor world by by going in there and getting rid of a hateful dictator who, who abused his people, kept his women down as the Taliban do, we are pr pr uh, bringing freedom to the world. We fought communism, real. We have bases in Germany and Spain. I mean, w w the budget to fight communism was gigantic. Right. So that's all I want to say is, and it didn't end the cold we, we don't bail out now. We we bring freedom to the world, and we then we leave and let the people run their countries democratically. We're trying to get this so everybody can make their points. The fellow who's not interested in listening, I know he was. He, that's why I needed and to answer he's that. Not interested in listening. Go ahead, sir. Okay. Uh, yes, my name is Russell King. Um, the September 11th attack was a very complex operation, and Afghanistan's a very backward country. And I'm wondering if Congress has looked a little more thoroughly into some other possible covert sources. For example, I read uh, um, Lieutenant Colonel Nargel wrote a book, Endless Cold War. He talks about Vladimir Putin, his relationship with these bombings of, of apartment buildings and so forth in Russia. Uh, he, the FSB and, and Putin has a, has a lot more expertise in, in sabotaging buildings. One of the buildings on September 11th collapsed uh, in New York without even a plane hitting it. Okay, And uh, so I was wondering if, if, if some of you would look into uh, other sources like, for example, uh, Che Guevara said we'll create for them many Vietnams, okay, and right now Russia is in the Panama Canal. Uh, they're doing joint military exercises with, uh, with Venezuela, and uh, I'm wondering if, if you have a, a good perspective of that, because you talked about World War II. We lost a grand strategy to the Russians and Chinese in World War II. We may have defeated the Japanese and Germans, but they gained a lot of territory. And I'd like you all to discuss this, and, and, and specifically the documentation of Afghanistan, of the Taliban, Okay, Congressman McClintock talked about our documentation, the Constitutional Declaration of War. What documentation do they sure. have? Is sure. Russian intelligence involved with that? Okay, guys, I need to see how many hands are up. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. That's five. Okay, six. Um, if, if we could, when we ask questions, statements are fine. Short harangues are fine. Okay. <laughs> Walking out is not fine. Howard you... Cowards who can't debate are allowed to walk out ahead of time and harangue outside. Um, but actually, I'm going to go ahead and take these other questions and then respond to them, because I, I don't want to leave any of the question statements out, and I want everybody to have a chance to end them. So short and cheerful. Uh, my, my name is Tad Howard. I've got one quick question, one uh, other question. Uh, the first question, uh, Representative McClintock, you said something about declarations of war. If I'm not mistaken, we, we went into Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, all these wars post-World War II without, with no declarations of war. 
In World War II, we did issue death. No, I know, I know, but everything subsequent to that, how Korea. That, and, and, and how did that work out? Okay, oh, we're we're oh, going to get no. to these each time. Go ahead. Yeah, Go ahead. That's the first question. The second question, uh, I know Charlie Rangel's got his problems, and I won't defend him, but he has been an outspoken advocate of reinstituting the draft. I'm from the Vietnam generation, as I guess all of you are, and it did one thing, and that made the war a pervasive presence in everybody's life. I personally know nobody in Afghanistan or Iraq, and I don't know what the consensus is in this room, but it's not a war that impacts us. If for no other reason, I personally would advocate a draft. I appreciate your comments on that. Okay. Next, just walk it back. Um, the, the U.S. forces are in Afghanistan basically to deny the jihadists a sanctuary to perpetrate another 9-11 or worse. And their, their justifications are pretty clear. I mean, people seem to forget this. They object to the American presence in the Middle East. And I'm sympathetic, the uh, overall presence, not just Iraq, not just Afghanistan. It's support for what they view as corrupt regimes and especially support of Israel. Um, and so I think if we consider a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I have some sympathy for, it can't just happen in isolation. And I guess my question is especially for Congressman Duncan. Um, can we withdraw from Afghanistan and keep on doing everything else we're doing in the region right now, and, and especially you know, sort of giving this blind and questioned backing of Israel, which sort of feeds the Arab rage and drives jihadist recruitment. Uh, just a very quick question. There are people on the other side of the aisle, I think, who have similar feelings about ending the conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on, uh, I guess what I'm saying is it seems to end this, might take a bipartisan effort, and if you could comment on that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm Eftikhar Hussain. I work for VOA, Pashto to the Border Region Service, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Thank you very much for the discussion. My question is uh, subcontracting this war or engaging in a different way has harmed the United States' interest in, uh, in many ways. And just to say that those people who were hiding in Afghanistan attacked the United States. Well, would you elaborate on how the United States then engaged when it has not really uh, trusted partners? to say the least, Pakistan, on the border region. It has not been really a good ally so far. And uh, again, because uh, the government uh, uh, rich in, in, in Kabul doesn't extend to the other parts of the country. And the people are, those militants are against development. So what should be the mode of engagement then? Thank you very much. Yes, hello. I'm interested in the panel's comments on the specter of nuclear and biological weaponry in our mission in the Middle East. Any other questions? Uh, way back. No, we got one question in the back. With respect to the issue of helping the oppositions, uh, why in a case like Iraq uh, were you not more forceful in sharing out the oil revenues to the citizens? Because that would stop new Saddam Husseins from blossoming up. The centralized oil revenue always creates oil autocrats. Okay. Mr. McClintock, to kick off, and then we'll... Okay. Uh, let, let me try to address about, about four of the major points. One of them is that this is a war against an ideology, not against a country. Well, wars are not waged against ideology. Arguments are waged against ideology. Wars are reserved for those rare occasions when our nation is attacked 
uh, uh, by force. That's what happened on 9-11. I disagree completely with the analysis that, uh, well, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, war we waged during World War II was, uh, was, was uh, against countries, not ideologies. There was no more virulent ideology at the time than Nazism, and uh, Japanese imperialism wasn't far behind. Uh, uh, but the point is, when our nation is attacked, we have responsibility to respond to that attack by military force, not by social work, uh, uh, not by gentle persuasion, not by trying to win hearts and minds. It is to marshal the full resources of the country, uh, destroy and break the ability and the will of that enemy to continue to make war upon us and to get it over with as quickly as possible. Um, I think also that we need to make a distinction, as the Constitution does, between uh, the, the Congress's responsibility uh, to raise and support armies and navies uh, and the President's responsibility as Commander-in-Chief to develop the, the strategies and tactics once a war is declared. Uh, I do agree that uh, from time to time, uh, uh, particularly in the 19th century, letters of mark and reprisal were very useful against such forces as the Barbary pirates. Uh, but I, I don't think that that would be, and, and, I, and I think it would also be appropriate as a response to, um, to uh, al-Qaeda's presence uh, in, in many foreign countries. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to the specific circumstances of our nation being attacked by a force uh, that was, in my judgment, acting as an agency for the government uh, of Afghanistan. Um, uh, probably draft? That there. Bring well, back a draft? There were two times in my lifetime when I, I think a declaration of war was warranted. And had we responded the first time, we probably wouldn't have had to respond the second time. And that first time was the seizure of the American embassy in Tehran. Uh, that was an act of war. Uh, it required, uh, I think, a declaration of war. Um, I support a draft only when there is a declaration of war. I, I, I don't support one in peacetime. Um, you know, there's a story of a guy that took his uh, son to the memorial to the USS Arizona, and they're staring at the wall with all of the names there of the sailors entombed. And uh, the little boy looks up at his father, and he says, Daddy, I, I don't understand something. Why is it that the Japanese had, had to attack us like that? And the father thought for the longest time, and he finally says, Son, I don't know. I just don't know. But it was a big mistake. Had we responded with the force that was required after the, uh, after the seizure of the American embassy, I don't think there would have been an attack of 9-11. Had we responded with that force after the attack on 9-11, I don't think we would be worrying about international terrorism today for exactly that reason. The next time there was a conversation around a campfire outside of Kandahar, and one of the, the, the youngest of the Turks uh, said, I've got this great idea, let's go attack the great Satan. The oldest and the wisest of them would probably say, son, that is a really bad idea. Dana? Well, I just um, think that that sounds good, but it doesn't work. And uh, can anybody here imagine if we to send uh, divisions of troops into Iran after the seizure of the American embassy? Uh, uh, it would have been the worst god-awful quagmire that anyone could possibly have imagined. And uh, that, uh, you know, again, when you're fighting large armies like the Japanese army or the German army, uh, yes, you respond by 
uh, large commitments of American troops and building up our military as we did in World War II. Uh, but that's not what won the Cold War, and that's not what will win the war against radical Islam. Uh, we've got to work with those people throughout the world who feel just as threatened and, and, and are enemies of radical Islam because they are moderate Muslims or, or there are others who are threatened by that, and let them do the fighting. Uh, this idea that, uh, look, my father was a career Marine. I grew up on Marine bases. I understand the, the strength and power that your military can have, but I also understand their shortcomings. You know, the, the military in quite a few situations is nothing more than the post office with guns. I mean, they are not efficient, an efficient means of achieving your goals. And uh, when I, uh, uh, frankly, uh, it doesn't work, Tom. I mean, it, uh, it, it sounds great, sounds like John Wayne, uh, but uh, we're not at the sands of Iwo Jima anymore trying to take the Japanese army out. And uh, uh, we, uh, and answer your friend, my friend here from Afghanistan, Unfortunately, what happened is after we supported those elements in Afghanistan that didn't like uh, the Taliban, and they defeated the Taliban, not with the U.S. military. And had, I, I, I'll tell you right now, had we sent in, taken your strategy, Tom, and sent in 200,000 American troops like we did into Iraq, into Afghanistan after 9-11, we'd have been in a worse god-awful quagmire than you can possibly imagine. And, you know, with, with all and, and the fact is we drove out the Taliban, but the political decisions that were made afterwards to support Karzai, who had no popular base to support at all, uh, instead of, uh, we had a lot of other alternatives, uh, uh, but instead our State Department insisted on other things, and that's why the Taliban now is, has this resurgence. But Karzai's regime doesn't have any uh, popularity, and, and we have been approaching the threat in the wrong way uh, since then, I'm, I, I guess draft. I, the draft, draft, yes uh, the no. draft, and a declared state of war. The draft is justified, but only when you have as, as other violations of civil liberties of our people. But unless you're willing to declare war, I agree with Tom in that we shouldn't have a draft unless you declare war, and we shouldn't be declaring war unless we have been attacked by a power that we can identify and declare war on. Okay, Tom, yeah, and I then could, just Dana, one quick response. With all due respect, the last time we tried it my way, it did work, and it's been an awful long time since we worried about another attack from Japan or Germany. We've been trying it your way ever since the end of World War II, and it hasn't worked very well. I, I, we defeated communism without yeah, a. But by surrounding time. it, by surrounding it with superior force, uh, uh, I, I agree. Uh, they, they, no, you're, there, you're there, there, was never, there was never you're an attack. You're misreading there, the end of the was, Cold War. There was never an attack. You're misreading the end of the Cold War. If you think that, that by surrounding them with military bases, uh, we defeated communists, we deterred attacks. We waited them out. But no, we didn't wait them out. We waged an aggressive war against them by supporting those elements within, communi within communist societies that didn't like communism. It wasn't U.S. troops that ended the Cold War. Receiving a threat is not the same as sanguinity. We, 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 we uh, uh, long before the attack on Pearl Harbor, yeah. uh, we were providing uh, uh, lend-lease assistance to Britain. Uh, yeah. We were uh, imposing severe trade restra uh, uh, restraints against, uh, against Japan. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was only after we attacked that we marshaled all of our forces, all of our resources. Again, World War II. Tennessee, Tennessee wants in on this. World War II. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, first, I'll start with the draft. Uh, uh, 
I don't, uh, I don't favor a reinstitution of the draft. Uh, it's not necessary at this time. And I think in a country that prides itself on freedom that we shouldn't force people to uh, work for the government because I do believe there are many other ways. That I, I very proudly served in the military, but I believe there are many uh, doctors serve the country well. Businessmen serve the country well by creating jobs. So you can serve the country well without serving in the military. Uh, to the gentleman that we made so angry, I will say this. My, my father served in Congress for 23 and a half years before me. Uh, there's nobody that I loved or respected or admired more than my, than my dad. And, and I've told people that I believe he probably rolled over in his grave when I voted against the war in Iraq and, 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 my, and also would have disagreed with my opposition to the war in Afghanistan. So we'd, uh, I've, I've uh, never gotten angry at anybody on the other side. We can do these things respectfully and civilly. Uh, it just seems to me that... Uh, what we've been doing uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan both, we've been turning the Department of Defense in many ways into the Department of Foreign Aid. And I don't think it, it, it should be that way. Uh, probably half of what we've done have been to rebuild their water systems, uh, have a small business loan program, all, uh, just everything you can think of. And our Constitution does not give us the power or authority to run another country. Uh, I, th I don't think that in, in any way we can compare these situations to World War II or uh, to Vietnam. Uh, I can tell you, I'm, I'm not a, a pacifist. And in fact, uh, when I was at, uh, in law school at George Washington, uh, they shut down the school for one week in support of the Vietnam moratorium. I opposed that and sent a letter to the dean of the law school asking for a refund of 7% of my tuition. And uh, I, got back, I got back a letter that cut me down better than anything I've ever received. He said, Dear Mr. Duncan, thank you for putting your thoughts to me in writing. Sincerely, Dean Kramer. And I, 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 went, I, went, home about, I went home about three weeks later, and my mother told me, said, Well, you made the uh, Washington Star today, and that was the afternoon newspaper. And I was an obscure, unknown law student, and I was amazed in, in what... Uh, the dean of the law school had shown my letter to the president of the university, and he'd shown it to this uh, columnist for the Star. And this columnist wrote a column contrasting t t uh, me and Jane Fonda as the two extremes, the two opposites. And so I supported that, that war very strongly. But I do not support these wars, and I think uh, we've, they've gone on far too long, and I think the sooner we get out, the better. And I fear for the future of this country if we continue to spend what will soon be trillions of dollars on unnecessary foreign wars. The three of you have spoken to this uh, publicly uh, in a partisan Washington, D.C., when the Republican president says, here's our plan. A lot of Republican congressmen, senators, a lot of Republicans around the country saluted and said, okay, he must know something. This must be the plan. Um, in retrospect if not publicly, among your peers in Congress, what percentage of Republicans in Congress would largely share your worldview, even if they don't exactly say it in CBS interviews? Well, I can tell you, I, uh, once uh, uh, President Bush decided to go into Iraq, I, I thought it was a mistake because we hadn't finished our, the job in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, and I'm just talking about the commitment of resources, not necessarily troops. We needed to help rebuild that society. Uh, but once he decided to go in, I felt compelled 
that the United States, that once our troops were committed, was not defeated and was not shown as a, as a weak power then. So I felt committed to, to back him up. But I will say that the decision actually to go in, in retrospect, almost all of us think that that was a horrible mistake to go in with those hundreds of thousands give of us, troops. Give, give us an guesstimate percentage of Republicans in Congress who would share that view. Not that they opposed the president at the time, but well, today now, looking back going... Well, now that we know that it cost a trillion dollars and all of these years and all of these lives and all of this blood, uh, I don't know many... Looking people, for a number. Two-thirds, one-third? I, I, I can't. All I can say is uh, the people, everybody I know thinks it was a mistake to go in now. That's 100%. And, uh, <laughs> but... but Knowing the outcome, not to say there weren't ways of dealing uh, with Saddam Hussein. I mean, as I say, we had other I, I, alternatives. I want to get numbers here. Sense of a number? What percentage? Uh, what percentage think that... Uh, of of Republicans in Congress who would agree with the general analysis here that it was a mistake and or we should go in. I, I, think, I, I think everyone would agree uh, Iraq was a mistake. Uh, uh, 200%. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're going to average these. And, That's uh, you know, I, 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 again... I think virtually everyone would agree going into Afghanistan the way we did was a mistake. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, how many uh, uh, share my, uh, my cynicism over this idea of a resolution of force, which I can't find anywhere in the Constitution, and how many believe that in those rare cases where we go in, we put all of our resources behind our soldiers? Uh, I would say certainly more than half of the Republican caucus probably believe that. Number? I will tell you a much more interesting, I think, percentage or meaningful. And I represent a very conservative, very pro-military district. And uh, uh, after I voted, it shocked my district when I voted against the war in Iraq. So about four years later, I had a man, a Ph.D. scientist, a very respectable candidate, who's now the mayor of one of our cities. He ran against me in the Republican primary entirely on the war. And... Uh, Always, and if I'd had a no-name, no-money Republican primary opponent, they, I think they got 8 or 9%. This man got 12.3% in the primary against me. So my, my percentage among Republicans, and they were the strongest supporters of the war, okay. went down. Excellent. Did, did we have one last question? There's a woman in the back, and then we'll wrap up. We can take both of them together because we're that good. They're that good. And the gentleman right in front of her. Yes. My name is Lyudmila Foster. I'm from the Congress of Russian Americans. And there is an awful lot of conversation now in Russia about the narcotics, the narco trade that is coming out of Afghanistan. And I, I would like to hear what the uh, three gentlemen have to say about this, that the um, drug situation has gotten so much worse, like um, much worse. Uh, and it, the whole thing is going into Central Asia and into Russia. So drugs coming out? That would, okay, yes, and the next... Yes, uh, mine related to nuclear and biological nuclear and biological weaponry, and uh, how that's influenced our our mission in the Middle East. Okay, one minute each, and then we wrap up, and then take a break before the next panel comes in. Go ahead, Dana. Starting with Dana, sixty seconds. Um, Drug prices falling internationally because of Afghanistan. Uh, 
Well, I, I don't know how to respond to that. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. I, 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 but, I, but I will. But I will just say uh, in, in wrap up. Uh, had we gone into Afghanistan, Tom, uh, there was a plan to do that. You weren't around here at that time, but there was a plan to send a, the same type of operation in Iraq into Afghanistan. Uh, can you imagine where we would be basing our, our troops? The, the, the staging area was supposed to be the northwestern provinces of Afghanistan, if that doesn't ring a bell, or, or of Pakistan. Pakistan. So if that doesn't ring a bell, that's the most anti-American part of the whole world. Uh, and they were, that's how incompetent our military was. And being able to send 200,000 troops in that way would have been a, a, an incredible quagmire. What we need to do is engage, but need to engage intelligently and work with good people who are all over the world who are, are, are friends of America because we try to be a moral people. So uh, that's the way to do it. And, not, and I'm not saying Jimmy is an isolationist because I'm not. I understand that he's not. But uh, I do believe in a greater engagement than, than, than simply uh, uh, saying that our troops shouldn't go in. That's one thing. But another thing would be is to support those people uh, militarily and otherwise who are good people throughout the world and not try to dominate the country by having a military installation there immediately thereafter. Dana, Tom McClintock. Dana, I'd, I'd define a quagmire as is eight years after our country's attacked, we, we are still uh, uh, engaged uh, against a country that, uh, whose government has now disintegrated and, and the, the entire focus of the mission is lost. Of, uh, again, I think had we waged war as we have in past centuries, uh, uh, the outcome would have been uh, uh, long ago, and we wouldn't be worrying about any of these issues from from uh, you know narcotics in Afghanistan. I mean, sort of like the Russians did. Sort of like the Russians did. No, no, no. They came no, in Russians, overwhelming force. No, the Russians made exactly the same mistake that we made. No, of, no, uh, no, no the Russians. War is not, Dana, war is not something to be won on a long list of agendas before the, the president and the Congress. If you are going to get into a war, you put all of your resources, all of the nation's focus, and its entire might and fury behind it and get it over with as quickly as you possible. Otherwise, don't do it. If you've never seen a Russian helicopter hind gunship coming over the hill, which you obviously haven't, I will tell you the Russians put everything in there, massive numbers of tanks, their whole technology. They had over 100,000 troops actively engaged in over 100,000 troops. Whole, that's my whole point. I mean, and they, our, own, our own counterinsurgency yeah. uh, manual requires 600,000 uh, uh, in okay. a country like okay, Afghanistan. Tom, right. We have okay. not made that Mr. commitment. Congressman Duncan, then we're going to wrap up. We, uh, I'm sorry, what was... I was just wondering about my question. <laughs> I don't understand the drug oh, part Like of we it. were listening. What was your question, well, sir? About the, uh, the nuclear. Uh, yes. the nuclear. Oh, nuclear. Yes, okay. Yes. Nuclear stuff. Right. Well, I've said all I need to say, really. I'm, 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 I'm in favor of nuclear power, and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to answer his question directly, yes, uh, the, the weapons of mass destruction of some kind, whether it's chemical, biological, or nuclear weapon that might be uh, brought to the United States or, or ignited somewhere overseas in a friendly country, uh, that is something we have to be concerned about when you have radical Islam that wants to terrorize the population of the world into submission to radical Islam. We have to be worried about that. But that doesn't mean sending troops all over the world that will not accomplish that mission. All right. Thank you very much for your question. Please join me. Thank you very much. Please join me. Um
We are going to give our members here a chance uh, to, to exit. Uh, Congressman McClintock in particular, I know, has a committee meeting that he has to get to. Please let him exit. We will reconvene here no, la no later than 10.30. Please be in your seats uh, by 10.30. Thank you very much.